president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future of Foreign Investors. I should note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion today is not tied to the offer of selling investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. An interesting week today. Uh, we're at the Jackson Hole Conference. You hear everybody's talking about monetary policies. You've got Yellen. You've got Draghi coming up a little bit later. Uh, you've got people talking about tax reform. They go, we're going to get tax reform. We're not going to get tax reform. Professor Siegel's been on talking about how he thinks we're still going to get tax reform. Professor, any readings of the markets here? How do you think we're, we're digesting all this news? Yeah, well, first of all, there's always over-anticipation of Jackson Hole as if there's going to be a big announcement. And of course, and basically Yellen said nothing. I mean, um, she did fall in line about saying, you know, a lot of regulation needs to stay, which is pretty much what Stan Fisher, her vice chair, had said, but nothing on uh, monetary powers. The market was not really moving on that. Draghi is yet to come. He may, as I mentioned last week, hint a little bit more. Um, but, you know, I, I, again, it, when, it, when it's a slow uh, August, people anticipate things that uh, turn out not to be all that, uh, that important. Of course, we do have a hurricane coming up, and it sent uh, gasoline futures way up in the morning, but I just checked them now, and... Um, they're actually down from yesterday. I think there was a report that they may miss the major refineries, which, of course, would uh, would definitely affect uh, gasoline supply, at least uh, in the short run. Um, uh, dollar is quite down again today. Wow, I really sell off on the dollar strength across the board um, on uh, basically all the currencies, including the emerging markets. Um, I think if there's anything that surprises me, we're out of earnings season basically, um, is the fact that uh, we see uh, commodity prices rising, aluminum, zinc, iron ore, uh, etc., and yet uh, the 10-year yield is falling. In fact, right now it's 216, um, and uh, uh, a lot of the rise in that is, is, is actually due to strength in China, and China, of course, was actually up almost 2%. Shanghai Composite overnight, um, which is which is basically a good thing. But uh, again, yields are staying down. Those long-term yields are down, uh, despite some of the strength in the in in the commodities. Of course, oil is is now at 47.60. As soon as it gets 50, it seems to go back down as as people sell futures to lock in profits. So uh, again. Um, uh, nothing, nothing really much. I guess uh, we're all waiting for the uh, employment report for the month of August, which, of course, is going to shape the uh, September Fed meeting, where the anticipation is that they will announce a definitive um, reduction in their balance sheet and tell us a little bit more about how many bonds they're going to sell. I've got two guests here in the studio, Steve Blumenthal of CMG Wealth, Corey Hofstein of Newfound. Any questions you want to jump into the professor with here? Yes, I'll jump in. This is Steve. Uh, hi, yes, professor. Steve. It's uh, nice, to, nice to hear you. Thank uh, you. Question. Where we sit in the long-term debt cycle and the impact of the Fed, what are your thoughts around that as it relates mm -hmm. to the direction of where interest, interest rates may be going? Well, are you referring to the, the impact of the reduction in the balance sheet, or are you referring to how they're going to be setting uh, interest rates in the short run, or both? <laughs> uh, yes, yes, both. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, you know, it, it, it does seem that the long bonds are completely complacent about uh, these sales that are coming from the Fed. Um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, we, have a, we have the normal deficit coming from the government. The big problem, as we all know, is the long-term deficit. It's not so much the short-term 
deficit over this year, next year, the year after. Um, but when we look at the deficit problem, it's a it's the long run entitlements that they definitely need to be reformed. They don't have to be reformed overnight. It's not a top priority now. Oh, and I do want to mention one thing I did in my commentary. Please dismiss all this talk about Trump closing down the government, Trump uh, not approving uh, the debt ceiling increase and all that. In my view, that's just total nonsense, total talk. We get it every year at this time. Uh, the Republicans took a bullet when they, you know, tried it 15 years ago. They tried it under Clinton, and it did not come out well for their <laughs> image. And so they've always seemed to avoid it every year afterwards. And certainly, I don't think, uh, you know, you know, threats from Trump are going to make any difference there. They will, they will come to accommodation. So I know that does flutter some people's nerves a little bit going forward. Um, uh, and some people do think that it does have a little bit of a depressing part in the market, but I just don't expect that. They're, they're definitely, in my view, uh, going to, uh, you know, going to work around that. Tax reform is, is the major thing that we want substantial progress in September and October. Um, you know, the, the, the Republicans only have a little more than a year, whether they have a guaranteed majority. Uh, they've got to make good use of that, and corporate tax reform, I think, is their is their best bet. And um, uh, you know, we'll see if they can move forward. I think they will, and I think I think Trump will sign anything that the House and Senate uh, get together and bring to the president on tax reform. Um, so I still think it's going to happen, and I think. Since it's pretty much been discounted by the market, uh, that's, that could drive us that extra 5 to 10% by year-end in early 2018. So, Professor, on, on the long end, is the reason you think that the market's not going up? Obviously, we have global pressures, and we have Europe and Japan, so very low yields. But do you think it's just worries now that the Fed's hiking, that you know, every time they, they hike and there's sort of growing possibility that we're going to get the sort of inverted curve and they're going to hike yeah. and the long rate doesn't go up, so they're starting to discount recession probabilities that were tightening? Well, it's a long expansion, but I think expansions are definitely just getting longer for many, many, many reasons, and I just don't see any excesses. Uh, I mean... Again, we've talked about the fact that, you know, we can't keep on producing 200,000 new jobs uh, without substantial increase in the participation rate, which would be most welcome, but certainly it's not a slam dunk. So, you know, it may not be 4 3% that, uh, you know, we get wages rising above productivity. It may be 4 0, it may be 3 8. But there's going to be some time when, uh, unless we slow down job growth, and, uh, you know, that that's going to happen. But I just don't see it on the horizon. Um, and, you know, we've, we've had a good response to the participation rate over the last three and three and a half years, actually, it's remained stable, despite the retirement of the baby boomers. But, uh, you know, you're, you're asking a question. There is, I think there are people on the Fed that are a little concerned. I mean, we're not inverted yet. We have a 10-year at 216 and we have a 90-day bill at 102, so we're still 114 basis points away. But, uh, and I don't think any increase is coming in September, so they're going to wait to December. We have three more employment reports, a lot of data coming in. I think that inversion is a good point. I've, we, we've often make it. I teach my, I teach my students it's, it's really the most single reliable indicator of recession in the post-war period, um, and I think, I think they're sensitive to it. And that's one reason why there's, I don't think, any increase at all until at most December, and only if they see real strength in commodity prices, oil, and the job market that would threaten um, uh, that. that in. And, and also if the 10-year starts going up and gives them more room to, to lift the, uh, the short-term rate without inversion. Your thoughts around the length of the cyclical bull market move that we've had, second longest in history, and where we sit in terms of very high market valuations? Well, you know, I've made my point that uh, relative to interest rates, which I think are on a new lower level for a long period of time, and I mean both real and nominal rates, I don't think our valuations are, are overly high. Um, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, 
it, it looks like about 20 times this time's er, this year's earnings. Uh, that's a 5% earnings yield. And when you have a 10-year tips, which is, you know, selling right now at 41 basis points, that's a really good margin. One has to remember back in 1999, we had the tips over 4% and the P.E. of the stock market over 30. <laughs> that was an inversion uh, and a real overvalued position. We are just miles away from that. Um, can this go more than the all-time record, which was the 1990 to 2000? It could. Um, uh, you know, that's the longest post-war expansion. Actually, one of the longest expansions, even if you go pre-war, um, uh, that we've had without a recession. But one, you know, if one goes to Europe and, and several other countries, Australia, they've had 15, 20-year expansions where they've not had what we uh, call, uh, you know, the typical definition of recession. So it's not out of question that uh, this could this could last many more years. I remember reading in your book, you talked about stop-loss risk management. Or is there advice that you would give around that today? Well, I think there's more momentum players. Uh, I think there's a lot on individual stocks and maybe even the market because momentum has been talked much more up as a factor than even when I – you know, wrote the, just was getting, when I read the fifth edition of Stocks for the Long Run, it was just beginning to get mentioned as an important factor along with the other, you know, famous small stock, value stock, you know, dividend, other things. I think there are people on that bandwagon, but, you know, um, as I say, when I look at the overall valuation, I see nothing like the extremes that we saw in, you know, 99, early 2000. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not saying we won't have a correction or 10 percent. And if, if, if the, if the Republicans don't make any progress on tax reform and earnings look tepid in the third quarter, you know, we could get a correction. Um, I mean, that can always happen. But uh, I just don't see a general overvaluation or excesses that would lead us. Uh, to a bear market. Professor, well, thanks for your comments. Have a great week. Thank you very much. So I'm going to turn to my two guests here in the studio. We've got two great guests, both ETF strategists, um, money managers, co-founder, chief investment officer of Newfound Research, Corey Hofstein, Steve Blumenthal, executive chairman, chief investment officer at CMG Capital Management. Steve, a Philadelphia guy, so down to Wharton, very easy for you to get here. But thank you, Corey, for coming in from Boston. Absolute pleasure to be here. Um, any sort of comments, reflections on just the opening commentary from the professor? Yeah, you know, the professor mentioned something um, about this structurally lower for longer rate cycle that I, I read an interesting anecdote about recently where the median FOMC member has the view that they'll only get rates up to a 3% level before they have to begin the next easing cycle um, due to the next recession. And what's potentially concerning about that and unique about that view is that in prior recessions, they've been able to cut interest rates by 400 basis points or more. And if they want to be able to use rate reduction as a tool uh, to help the economy and slow down a recession, that would push them well into negative interest rates, which would be an incredibly unique environment for the United States. So. We're really in this interesting environment nowadays um, where fixed income may not be able within the next recession to prove as strong a ballast as it used to unless the Fed is able to get rates back to a more normal level. And Professor Siegel comments on this all the time. He thinks the, they're actually still too optimistic, that he doesn't think they're going to get to 3%. He thinks we're going to get closer to 2% as the quote-unquote new neutral, uh, maybe 2% at the end of this cycle, 2 to 2 and a quarter, maybe get 100 basis points higher premium. So maybe the long end is 3 towards the end of the cycle, 3 to 3.5. So it's, it's a very interesting uh, There's commentary. been 13 Fed rate cycles since World War II. Ten of them have landed us in recession. Three of them were modest, and we're starting this one with debt levels that uh, that we've never seen before. Uh, global debt to GDP is at a level that we haven't seen before, over 300 percent. U.S. at 250 percent. So when you start to raise rates and that new debt needs to roll over, the impact on the balance sheet when you're paying a higher borrow cost is is tougher. So it squeezes the economy sooner. I think the risks are asymmetric went to the upside for the downside. So I'm in uh, your camp and 
uh, Dr. Siegel's camp. I mean, it's interesting how we talk about these huge debt levels, and you say, who's the poster child of the huge debt levels? It's Japan. 200 plus debt to GDP, but they now have negative rates. So issuing more debt, they should be borrowing as much as they can because it improves their debt position. Negative rates is the solution. And it's a fascinating scenario. Um, let's talk, let's sort of go from the macro to just introduce your firms a little bit. Maybe, maybe Steve, start with you. Um, talk a little bit about CMG Wealth, how you got started in, in the industry, what your sort of position is, is today. Well, I started a few blocks down the road here in Center City, Philadelphia, on a Merrill Lynch options arbitrage desk. Uh, so those were the early days. That was 1984. Uh, I later moved to the retail side of the business, and in 1992 established uh, CMG, Capital Management Group. Uh, our focus is uh, a quantitative shop. Uh, we um, are, Most of our clients are other investment advisors. Uh, we are focused on something in the industry we call time series momentum, which in plain English is uh, a form of trend following. And we incorporate relative strength rankings uh, based off of this measurement that we do to seek to position in assets that are gaining in price uh, and where that leadership is. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that in, in a lot more details. But, Corey, maybe you could describe your firm, Newfound, how you guys position in the industry. Yeah, so Newfound uh, is a quantitative tactical manager based out of Boston. Uh, we got our start a little little later than CMG uh, in the fall of 2008. Uh, in retrospect, a great time to start a business, but at, at the time it felt like the world was falling apart. Um, similar to Steve, we build ETF portfolios. Our focus is on the application of value investing, momentum, trend, and we also incorporate some aspects of, of carry and defensive investing as well, mostly focusing on multi-asset portfolios. So both focused on building portfolios, both somewhat focused on the ETF industry. Talk about where you see the whole industry going. I mean, how do you say the advisors that you're you're trying to appeal to to, to become clients? I mean, where do you see the ETF strategist business? Um, and how do you just sort of look at the future for the next few years as, as you, you see the overall uh, market environment? I mean, how do, how do you see it shaping? A lot of it depends on how the world plays out, how the equity and fixed income markets play out over the course of the next couple of years. Uh, if we have a straight up uh, equity bull market, then passive 60-40 buy and hold uh, likely does well. If interest rates move lower, that 40% fixed income should do uh, okay, even though 2.16% 10-year treasury is only going to get you 2.16 over the next 10 years. 40 bips real. It's tough. Yeah. We we look at valuations, and we look at the equity market valuations. One of the things it tells us is zero about uh, market peaks or timing the market. We think that that's uh, an impossible thing to do. But what it does tell us a lot about is what the coming seven-year returns are likely to be and the coming 10 years returns are likely to be. So in that through that lens, we're looking at perhaps 2 to 4% equity market returns for 10 years. I think investors are expecting somewhere around 10% for the equity return, and we're just not in an environment that's going to uh, produce that until we have the next recession and flushes some things out. So we believe that having a tactically managed component within a portfolio that participates and also risk protects is an important piece within a portfolio. Uh, so I think that there's a, a real strong future for what we're doing uh, in advisor and client portfolios. 2 to 4% is pretty bearish. Two to four percent is optimistic. Mm, optimistic, Corey. Any any view on that? Well, I I actually uh, I wouldn't call it optimistic. I don't know if I'd call it bearish. I'd call it right down the middle for me in terms of uh, my view as well as other views I've seen. Um, you know, I, I think for most people, they get these big glossy brochures at the beginning of the year. Most advisors that that I work with that with these big capital market assumptions. What's going to happen in the world? What's going to happen over the next year? And I think. Steve is absolutely right in that really if you just focus on equity valuations in the U.S. and fixed income, you can get a pretty good sense of how your traditional 60-40 type portfolio, your balanced portfolio is going to perform over the next 7 to 10 years. And with equity valuations at a high, and I think there's an argument why they should be structurally higher today than they have been in the past, but nevertheless they are high. And with low interest rates, that outlook is nowhere near as strong as it was in, say, the 1980s. And we can't rely yeah. on those strong historical returns to carry us forward. And so, so just, co Corian, commenting on the ETF 
strategist business? I mean, how do you see that morphing? Where do you see, as it's grown to be where it is today, um, I mean, how do you look at the future for that business? Yeah, so Steve has, has a little more historical perspective than I do. Again, Newfound got its start in 2008. And what we saw post-2008 was a very large appetite for risk management, uh, arguably at the exact wrong time. Uh, people probably should have been very heavily risk on, but I think people were identifying that in a big recession, correlations go to one. Having some active means of risk management can be a great complement to strategic portfolios. Today, I think people are a little more complacent. Just being in equities has worked. Uh, they're looking to reduce fees. They're potentially looking to move away from active managers. But I still think tactical can play a big role as a complement to hopefully allow investors to continue to participate so long as the market remains tepid, but give them a plan of action should things turn the other way. So let's talk about how you guys start forming tactical views So and, and what, what are the, the key indicators? Uh, looking at momentum, time series momentum is, is key, clearly part of your process there, Steve. Um, maybe talk about sort of as you build a global portfolio as, as one of the big solutions that you offer, talk about how you're trying to build that portfolio. Well, we want to have the ability to move anywhere. Uh, we believe that there's a bull market in something somewhere. So we build 11 different unique models. Each model has, uh, call it, 8 to 10 different asset classes. So think uh, a high beta, higher risk asset class like a sector, uh, a market beta asset class like the S&P, uh, mid-cap value growth, um, and fixed income, low beta asset classes like a utility, and then uh, bonds, in, so fixed income and cash. So each, each model of these 11 sleeves ha models has a place to go. What we do is we measure the performance of an asset class. So how is its trend? How strong is its trend? So we look at the rate of change over a period of time, and we measure and define a period of time and say, on a relative basis, which of these asset classes is performing well? So this is simply a trading strategy. It's an, a, an alternative way to generate return. So we're looking for those. And then by having 11 different unique measurement periods, how we measure the strength of momentum, and 11 unique different holding periods in each of the models, we end up with a portfolio. Each of the 11 picks one thing, uh, the strongest running asset class, and we hold that for a period of time, and we continue to measure that and wash, rinse, and repeat. Yep. We keep that process going. We, ha we have Steve Blumenthal here in the studio, CEO of CMG Wealth. We've got Corey Hofstein of Newfound Research. Um, Corey, how do you guys, you heard a little bit of what Steve's building on, on this global tactical, and we'll, we'll come back to him on this. Um, how do you think about how you're looking to adapt a, a tactical portfolio? Yeah, so in the interest of providing a completely different perspective than Steve, I'm going to try to talk about a, a newfound portfolio that does something a little different. Because I do think um, trend following is a great approach, and we use trend following and momentum in many of our portfolios. But for a different perspective, uh, one of the global portfolios that we manage is very value-driven. So what we do is, for a large number of asset classes, come up with a view of expected returns as well as their correlations and volatilities. And using that, we create an optimized portfolio. Now, those expected returns that we generate are very driven by valuations. Mm -hmm. So for example, we may have a long-term view about US equities simply based on earnings growth and dividends. But then what we'll do is because we think uh, valuations are so high, we'll pull back that expected return. Uh, similarly, for with bond interest rates being so low, the outlook for traditional fixed income may be pulled back. And so what you end up with is a portfolio that tends to tilt more heavily towards relative value opportunities, asset classes that are looking much cheaper. And so in unlike trend following, which might stick with an asset class so long as it's still going up, this type of approach will tilt away from something like U.S. equities, even if they go up for the next several years, the idea being that if that bubble were to burst, you're out of the way. So it's a little more preemptive in that sense, and you're always trying to tilt towards where you think you're getting more bang for your buck. Are you seeing that in emerging markets today? So if you were to completely run this in an, in an unconstrained manner with no sort of recognition of what the asset classes are, uh, and you wanted something that was similar in risk to call it a 60-40, a, a balanced portfolio, 
you would only have about 10% of your allocation in U.S. equities. And only about 4% of that would be large cap. You'd have about 15, 20 in emerging markets. You'd have about 10 in emerging market debt, uh, local currency, 10 in U.S. dollar denominated local market debt. You'd have almost no traditional fixed income. You'd actually, if you let the optimizer run, it would be only long bond, uh, long treasuries, simply used as a, as a ballast to equity risk. So you get a very, uh, what I would call a weird portfolio that almost no one would be comfortable holding. I'd, I'd buy that. Well, maybe I'll put it together <laughs> there, for you. There you go. Um, Steve, how do, when you think about what um, this combining value strategies, expected return strategies with sort of these trend portfolios, how would you say you, that global tactical model, is the 11 different sleeves, how much of a client's portfolio do you suggest people using that? Is that the bulk of their portfolio, half their portfolio, a sleeve? I mean, how do you suggest advisors incorporate that? Well, so we do see this and we make these, these we have these conversations all the time with the advisors. And I would tell you that the typical allocation is probably around 10% into the strategy. We've got 11 positions, but it's typically around 10% of a portfolio. Uh, we've seen it as high as 25%, 30%, maybe. So I think I think ten to fifteen is is about the right spot. Okay. Um, and and so when you think about your your value portfolio, is that is, is that something that you're arguing for a greater percentage or these sleeves, or is that something you want to be as the anchor? So so we don't actually offer it in the fully unconstrained yeah. version. So by constraining it and bringing it back more towards a traditional sixty forty, I think it can be an all in solution. But for our more highly tactical strategies, I'm with Steve. I normally see it as somewhere between 10 and 30% of a portfolio. So when we think about the biggest challenges people are facing, I mean, the the equities, um, and I said, Steve, you are bearish with 2 to 4%. I'm sort of with Siegel on. You got a 5% real return, perhaps, from a 20P ratio. I know the people who look at CAPE ratios get something more like 2 to 4, so maybe that's where you're coming up with the 2 to 4. Um, but let's say... If you take Siegel's worldview that you know historical stock returns were six and a half, now you have five percent. So stocks are expensive; they're lower forward-looking returns. But if bonds were three and a half, and now you're at forty, perhaps you're challenging. You're more challenged in the bond side. Um, what would you suggest people do in the bond side, given just this low yield environment that we're in? Well, I would encourage them to give us a call. We, we run a <laughs> we run a um, a tactical fixed income strategy, but seek things like this. So, uh, in our clients' retail clients' total portfolio, we have a thirty percent weighting to fixed income, and the way that we break that down is twenty percent into a tactical strategy, which I'll explain and give some ideas around, and then we have ten percent in a trend following high yield strategy. Hmm. So, just to I have my own fundamental view of where I think interest rates are, are going, and I find myself in your camp and, and Professor Siegel's camp that I think ultimately rates are, are lower for longer and will be lower from here, certainly in the next recession. But aside from that, the risk is if that view is wrong and rates rally. So uh, an idea around a tactical fixed income strategy, we look at, and this is where ETFs are fantastic tools available to all investors at relatively low fees. So it's, it's great that we've got the ability to do these things, all of us. So we look at nine different fixed income asset classes, which include tips and cash, which include emerging market bonds, developed market bonds, high-grade corporates, treasuries, convertibles, munis, and high yield. I think I got them all. So we look at them, and then we run our same trend process on those nine different asset classes. And we say, which of these nine have the strongest price gain, the, pro the relative strength over a period of time? And then we hold the top two. Hmm. And we measure weekly, and we rotate if there isn't always a trade each week, but we, we rotate out. Right now, for example, uh, we're in muni bonds and uh, emerging market debt. So On the local or the USD side? Uh, on I hear you. It's local. Local. Yeah. So we have yeah. the currency. Right. So we have, which has been good for us yeah. in this past week. So it, it is, um, it's a way, it's a different way to attack fixed income. Uh, our, I won't quote the returns, but we're thrilled with the returns over the last 12 months relative to the difficulties that have been in the fixed income market. Uh, we just think it's an alternative place. So that's how we play it. I want to come back to this conversation. We're going to take a quick break. You're, you're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. Uh, we'll be back after a short break. 
Welcome back. This is Behind the Market. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. In the studio, joining with me, we've got Steve Blumenthal, CEO of CMG Wealth here in Philadelphia based RIA. We've got Corey Hofstein of Newfound Research in from Boston. Uh, we just started talking about income, the, the challenge for the these income starved investors here. And Steve was giving us his portfolio of sort of a tactical portfolio for fixed incomes, looking at nine different fixed income asset classes, rotating between the two. Uh, Corey, what's your sense on the low yield environment? How do you guys think about just the, the forward returns from bonds? Um, and then what you should be doing in lieu of just, just buying the, the ag index? Yeah, so I, you know, with with equities, it's always tough to forecast where equities are going. With bonds, it's a little easier in the sense that the yield you buy at is more or less the return you're going to get. And so with a low interest rate environment, the expectation is pretty clear that you're going to have low fixed income returns going forward. We've lived in a world uh, historically where you had the luxury that fixed income could meet all these different needs. It, it was a position of safety. It provided income. Uh, it was a diversifier during normal times to equities. And in crisis periods, it was a hedge. And so for a couple of years now, Newfounds had the view that investors should think about unbundling fixed income, uh, taking each of those four outcomes and objectives and trying to find alternative investments that can actually meet those needs and then rebuilding back into one package as is, is fit for whatever the investor is trying to come up with. So for example, as far as safety goes, well, maybe you just use very short duration credit or very short duration U.S. Treasuries. Income, you might need to look towards places like high yield bank loans, emerging market debt. Hedging, you might look towards long duration treasuries or things like managed futures that have historically exhibited crisis alpha. And then diversifiers, you could look towards things like even equity long short and try to focus on some alternatives. And then think about recombining those into a single portfolio to replace traditional ag exposure uh, to better meet the needs that you are using fixed income for. Yeah, I mean, my worry is everybody's counted on fixed income being this diversifier, but they haven't seen both go down together. You know, that it's possible that your next equity sell-off comes off with bond yields going higher. And if you see, if you take Siegel's argument that one of the reasons why stocks have higher valuations is because you have a low-yield environment, that could be the proximate cause for stocks going down, is that you actually do get a, a rise in yields. But not, not that we're expecting it. The switch that trips the system. Yeah, yeah. That, that could be one of those cases. Is that how do you guys think about just a duration model? Do you think about do you think you can time a duration? You know, we've been in this falling yield environment, but would you say momentum is something that you would use to evaluate your whether you want bond risk? So we we've created something that we call the Zweig bond model. It's something that uh, Marty Zweig, uh, a great investor for a lot of years, a name that's that's probably recognized, uh, created with Ned Davis Research. And it looks at the trend of fixed income. And it's done a good job over the years uh, keeping us on the right side of the interest rate moves. It has been, so for example, in 2014 going into 15, uh, I believe that the long, uh, the 10 year was at 275. The average of 25 Wall Street economists predicted that the 10 year would re rise that year to 3.25%. It finished the year just below 2.50%. So I, too, was in the higher interest rate camp going into that year, but this wide bond model kept us on, on side. I think momentum can help hmm. uh, identify what's happening. It's simply a measure of more buyers or sellers, and it meets at a point of price. And you can see where trend is. So it, I think it's valuable. Corey, do you guys think you can do duration timing? So my research points me towards a very skeptical yes. Um, and I believe momentum, like Steve said, is a great tool. Uh, my research shows that you can use value models to time duration. You can use carry models to time duration. Um, you can explicitly try to calculate the bond risk premium, that excess return in, in longer dated uh, debt versus shorter dated compared to inflation. Now, for value versus carry, I mean, how different are they for bonds? I mean, isn't the ultimate yield like your valuation indicator? What else would be a value signal for bonds? So, so when I'm saying carry, I'm talking about sort of the term spread. 
um, versus values going to be more of a real yield estimate. So your yield minus inflation expectations. So slightly different, but but somewhat related, right? Because that term spread has embedded within it some expectation of the low end rising. Um, so they're they're related. The problem with that research has been we've really been in the same environment for the last 35 years. And so when you test an investment strategy, ideally you're able to test it across a broad set of different market environments to determine how stable those signals are. And being in the same environment makes me highly skeptical uh, in their application going forward. So we talked a little bit about stocks versus bonds, some classic stocks versus bonds. And you know, for people who share, Steve, your view, we're in a more skeptical 2 to 4% lower return environment. I mean, what are some alternatives that you think you're focused on? I know you've become part of um, John Malden, for people who are listening in, has a big following. He writes a, a weekly newsletter. He does a lot of different things. And you, he's starting to do an ETF strategist portfolio. Is that something you think is um, maybe sort of talk a little bit about that? And is that one of these alternative uh, Portfolio is an option for non-equity bond-only people. I do, and I'll give you a couple couple of examples. So, first of all, uh, he has a view that uh, the debt level that we are in the developed world uh, is reaching a point where we'll hit an end point. Uh, he's calling it the Great Reset, uh, where we'll have to, when we pensions are underfunded significantly, low interest rates are starving, the forward returns, uh, certainly the actuary return assumptions in pensions. Yet the demographics are reaching a point where it's it's kind of calling that to task. So how we deal with that and how we deal with uh, the debt situation, um, his view is it's going to get bumpy. Um, our view is it's going to get bumpy. All of this will, we believe, get reconciled in, in, in the next recession, and we'll have another recession, uh, the timing of which we don't know. So what he put together was he started looking back and saying, how do we deal with this environment uh, for his readers to get from here to, let's say, the other side of that bridge uh, to be in relatively good shape, hopefully with, with a good profit, but um, not – his view is is that we're going to have a significant correction similar to 2000, 2002, uh, similar to 08, 09, but in a different form, not the same great financial crisis, but uh, a serious correction that, um, that, that will reset. So – what he started thinking about several years ago was how does he deal with this? And uh, he sat down with a gentleman by the name of Steve Cucchiaro. Steve uh, founded Windhaven, sold Windhaven to Schwab, built it to a very successful firm. Uh, and so they would debate and have ideas and talk about it. And he thought, well, this makes a lot of sense to me. I want to be with a global tactical strategist, go anywhere type of strategy uh, with experience management that has the ability to execute uh, and manage money. Uh, and, but he didn't want to just put it all on one strategist. So he, his belief is that you diversify between trading strategists. So he sought out four. We're thrilled to be one of them uh, in, in that mix. And uh, yeah, look, I'm largely, largely biased because I'm talking my book. Uh, I, I think it's important to participate in markets and also have risk protection built yeah. in place. Um, and and that, that's what he put together. That's great. Um, Corey, any, as you think about these alternative portfolios, um, how would you, at Newfound, look at building an alternative option, or, or what do you think people should be doing instead of just stocks and bonds? Maybe if they had, whether you call it the unconstrained or any other strategies in this alternative world. I think the answer that I would give really varies whether I'm talking in an absolute vacuum, as in, can I come up with an answer that no one probably would be willing to tolerate in practice, or whether you have to acknowledge what are the real behavioral limitations that most investors have, that they're not really willing to deviate too far from your traditional stocks and bonds portfolio. And they are only they only have so much tolerance for asset classes or strategies um, that have a high level of tracking error. So we see this all the time with managed futures. I think managed futures is a great complement to tactical strategies whether they're value-based tactical strategies or trend-following-based tactical strategies. Uh, but all too often, investors get into managed futures after they've had a run-up and then uh, run away from managed futures when they have some negative tracking error to the market. And in my opinion, all of these types of alternatives, equity, long, short, tactical, managed futures, they all 
can complement each other very much the same way Steve just mentioned about manager diversification, process diversification. They can all fit within a portfolio, but they have to be an asset allocation. They can't be a trade. You can't try to time these things. If you're going to have them, they need to be a permanent part of your plan. We're well talking, said. We're talking with Steve Blumenthal, uh, CEO, CIO of CMG Capital Management. We've got Corey Hofstein of, of Newfound. Um, in terms of these alternatives um, and, and sort of trend models. And we talked a little bit about how trend is, is one of these timing indicators that can help. Do you guys think about other timing models in terms of what other people can be doing besides momentum? Is there something in the research that you guys are, are exploring that just goes beyond trend? Or what sure. other people are looking at sure. that goes beyond trend? So when I think of sort of tactical, I think there's two sides of tactical. I think there's the market timing side, and I know that's sort of a bad word. You're not supposed to say market timing, but there's the market timing where you're absolutely in and out. And then there is sort of the relative trade. On the market timing side, trend, I think, is a very, very popular approach. Valuation is another. Yeah. Uh, people simply saying equities are overvalued. Let me get out. Regardless of where I go, I just don't want to be there. Um, we also see volatility is yeah. pretty often a trigger that people who may try to maintain a constant volatility profile are actually timing the market and using volatility as their signal. Um, those are probably the biggest three that we tend to see, and sometimes it's just a position sizing uh, idea, but in reality, that is market timing to some degree. And I would say that a lot of investors do it in the wrong way, where they chase in, we look back, we bought what we wish we had, and we sell what we are going to need. Uh, Diversification is really important in the overall structure, talking to an advisor that's got an experience and understands your needs, your goals, your time horizon, and how to put portfolios together that will prevent you from blowing yourself up in the next dislocation. You know, years of working with individual investors, um, this goes back to the market crash in 1987. I wouldn't have imagined that the behavior would be the way that it was, but it was. And the multiple time periods since then, whether it was uh, the great tech run-up and the taxi drivers uh, running around with their quote truck machines making a lot of money, uh, all at the top of the market. This is really classic behavior. So we tend to buy what we wish we had and we sell what we need. And, and the best advice is to do the exact opposite of that. Hmm. I should point out that I, I mentioned value. I mentioned volatility. I mentioned trend. All three of those approaches have historically worked in the United States. If you applied those approaches against U.S. equities, all of them over the long run have not only beat equities from a total return basis, but they've beat them on a risk-adjusted basis as well. The downside is that they can go decades underperforming. Um, you know, you saw it with value during the dot-com run-up. That's and, a perfect example. And since the 09 recovery. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so these things, they can work... Uh, but again, I think there, the emphasis here needs to both be on a diversification of approach, uh, I think is prudent, as well as to steal a line of, from Cliff Asness from AQR. You probably only want to sin a little. As, as Steve mentioned, this is not an all-in or all-out that you should be doing uh, with 100% of your portfolio. It's probably prudent for 10 to 30%. So you have this core sort of buy the market, buy it in some reasonably low-cost structure, and then you try to send a little outperform the market, outperform whatever your your sort of quote unquote benchmark is with these more dynamic tactical strategies. Can you talk a little bit about who you think should be listening to try to reach out to your firms, and what are the typical profiles of either your clients or the clients that you think ought to be using you guys? Well, thank you for that question. Um, I'll give a quick story of a recent client. Uh, uh, he runs a firm out of Chicago. He advises other investment advisors. Uh, he's a consultant to independent advisors, and he seeks ideas, helps the outsources, and becomes their outsourced chief investment officer in some cases. Uh, collectively, his firms represent roughly $35 billion in assets under management. He came to us because he was looking for a liquid uh, solution to the problem he has in the fixed income piece of his portfolio. Mm -hmm. So he uh, invested in the Malden Solutions uh, core strategy uh, to fill that role. So um, that's, you know, advisors that are very forward-looking, as, as he is, 
Um, he's, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I guess the simple answer is is that uh, most advisors that we're talking to are thinking about going back to being more traditional here. They may have come from a broader diversification allocation to tactical managers like us. And, and a, a lot of the conversations are, um, you know, my, my client's upset I didn't beat the market, and they're going back the wrong way, much like the tops of the markets in 07 and, and 19, in the late 1990s. So um, the, smart, the smart shops are adding more. Good. Corey? So Newfound has actually three lines of business, so I'll try to keep this really brief. Um, in our asset management division, I would say, similar to Steve, it is advisors who are looking to solve the problem of today's 60-40. Um, they have very traditionally allocated portfolios, and they're looking for solutions that can serve as a satellite position, whether it's to solve for the bond problem or equity valuations or somewhere in between, looking for a satellite turnkey solution that they can plug into their existing portfolio. Um, we also offer more of an outsourced CIO type model as well, which means that advisors who are simply looking to completely let go of the asset allocation, turn it over to someone else to make the asset allocation decisions as well as the security selection divisions. There's a number of advisors and, and platforms that we work with in that capacity. And then finally, uh, we work with a number of institutions and developing custom tactical mandates. Very good. So it, it sounds like both of you, we have a debate in the industry all the time, active versus passive, and people are you know historically going away from just the, the traditional active manager. You guys are all doing, these portfolios that you're describing are all very active. They're just not active through security selection for the most part. Like, I haven't heard either of you talk about security selection at all. You're all rotating between passive building blocks. Correct. Correct. We're using passive... Uh, ETFs, and we trade them actively. And do you worry at all about the whole rise of passive, the quote-unquote passive investing fad, as people are calling it? Yes. Um, uh, what happens, what tend to, tends to happen is when you get so many people heavily concentrated on the same side of the trade, when the weak hands uh, leave. But are you a weak hand? No. Right? So you're, both, we, but you're one of the big adopters of passive investing. But what this provides us, right, when, when the next reset hits, the next recession, the next challenge, and everybody is so heavily loaded in passive products, and this includes ETFs and mutual funds. ETFs a small percentage of the total outstanding assets. But if you look across pensions that uh, mimic asset uh, indices, um, when when the next connect, disconnection happens, you've got everybody selling the same thing, everybody running for that door at the same time. So that's an opportunity for us. We think that will be picked up in mm. price. We think that that will create the next opportunity. So um, this isn't too unlike the, the tech craze uh, or the nifty 50 stocks in the 70s. The only so my pushback on the idea that the passive is is creating I I, I hear the comment that it, it, you get the weak hands are going to all sell out, but in a way it you say if it's all been going towards just pure beta, um, who where is the money coming out of right? So it's, what we what I tend to see is you see a, a shift in ETFs, a shift in indexing, a shift out of active. Now the question is is a shift out of active a certain style of active that's becoming out of favor? Is money just leaving value investing? Um, which I'm not sure I see. And so then, then the question is, is it just going from higher fee funds to lower fee funds? Yes. And then yes. the the only, then there's really not a shift in general. It's just we're going from a structure of higher fee and, and people are just keeping the lower but if, fees. But if you're pulling from a manager who's making security selection and you're putting it into an index where 30% of the return is coming from the FANG stocks, just well, that's, stocks. That was my point on, is it just leaving yeah. value investing and going to FANG? Yes, I think it's not just value investing. It's leaving leaving the small cap growth manager. It's leaving mm -hmm. uh, uh, the value manager. It's leaving uh, any sort of uh, passive mutual or actively managed mutual fund. Higher fee mutual fund is going into lower fee product. Yeah, you definitely see it very consistently. There's a, there's a very large monotonic relationship between fee and flows. Um, and uh, Eric Balchunas does some great work, and that is the easiest way to determine lately whether a product is seeing inflows or outflows. It's simply what decile of the fee structure does it fit in. And certainly it's really anything below, I believe, 50 bips is seeing inflows and anything above 50 basis points is seeing outflows regardless of whether it's an indexed product or not. 
Yeah, no, it's a, it's a big trend to lower fees. And with lower return expectations, you would say you got to, in some ways, lowering fees is one of the easiest way to, to bank some alpha. Um, we got about four minutes left. Um, any sort of things that we haven't covered that you guys would, would like to touch upon as we think about sort of wrapping up our, our final thoughts here? Well, I think, I think an important point we touched upon here quite a bit was the balance that, that tactical or asset allocation doesn't have to be 100% of, of what you do, that there should be a balance between strategic and tactical. And I guess, Steve, I, I'd love your views because you've had a, a longer history of doing this than I have. Um, you know, you, we talked about that 10 to 35% of fully tactical. Is that enough to make a difference for a client's experience? Well, if you ask my friend John Molden, he thinks it should be a minimum of 60% in a portfolio. It's just difficult to get a lot of advisors to that, that place and difficult for the advisors to get clients to that, to that place. Um, but I would argue that um, diversifying between a number of trading strategies uh, that, that is a collectively a larger allocation than 30% and up to 60% makes a lot of sense for some people. Is there anything that you see out there that you think really helps diversify a trend-following approach? So if someone says, okay, I want to, I like this trend-following idea, I want to do it for 10% of my portfolio, but I want another tactical strategy that works really well, but differently than trend-following? Yeah, so that's a great question. And uh, let's say somebody were to pair the two of us together. What they should look at would be the return streams of the strategies side by side. Uh, do they correlate? Are they highly correlated? Uh, and then dig deeper. What's the approach and uh, how experienced is the team and uh, how long have they been running it? So when, when you can combine several strategists together that come about trying to create a profit but do so in a non-correlating way, I think there's great value in that. Very good. And so maybe we could talk, where can we find you? Steve, you write a lot. Corey, you write a lot. Uh, Steve, describe where people can keep in touch with your, your writing. So I do a weekly letter I call On My Radar. It is, uh, you can go to our website, www.cmgwealth.com. And at the bottom of the home page, put your name and your email in, and you'll start getting that, uh, that email. Very good. And Corey? Uh, I write a weekly research commentary published every Monday morning. Uh, if you go to our website, www.thinknewfound.com, N-E-W-F-O-U-N-D.com, uh, you can link to our research there, and there's a uh, box you can sign up. And you're both on Twitter. We got C. Hofstein at Twitter, and we got S. Blumenthal, CMG, on Twitter. Um, these two gentlemen, both very interesting ways of managing money using um, as, a, as a solution for a different advisors, building different portfolios. It's sort of interesting how you guys come to some similarities, obviously different approaches, um, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a great conversation. Thank you both for, for coming down to our studio. Pleasure being here, Jeremy. Thank, Thank you, you very for much having for us. having us. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Um, you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast as well. Um, I'd like to thank our producer, Patricia Hall. I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno, for always helping us getting our podcast up and running. Uh, have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.